Welcome to Studio Two. Hi, everybody. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman. Aaron, we are excited today. We got a live musical performance coming up later in the hour on Studio Two. Philly's own Amos Lee is here. I am so, so excited. And we'll learn about First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt and a top secret dangerous mission she took to the Pacific Theater during World War II. It's a fascinating story that you'll want to hear. Before, before we get to all of that, however, mm-hmm. um, we want to round up some local news. And uh, I'll give it to you first, Cherry. And this is this is yeah. a somber story. It is. We had some heavy rain this past weekend causing flooded roads and dangerous conditions for drivers. And it ended in tragedy. Five people were killed after a powerful thunderstorm set off destructive flooding in Bucks County Saturday night. The flash flood happened around 5.30 p.m. that day. Two children, nine-month-old Conrad Shells and two-year-old Matilda Shells, remain missing. Their mother, Katie Seeley, 32 years old, was among five, the five that deceased individuals who have been recovered. Um, the cause of their death, drowning due to those floodwaters. Um, they were all en route to a barbecue, something we all do mm-hmm. during this time of year. Um, the Shells family is from South Car- from Charleston, South Carolina. The father, Jim Shells, was also in the car. He rescued himself and an older son out of the vehicle. The grandmother was also there. She was rescued and survived the flooding. None of the victims were found inside the car. They must have exited and tried to save themselves and at some point got caught in this. Um, Avi, we talked about this earlier, literally brings tears to my eyes. The two young babies who are missing, so beautiful, and got caught in this flash flood. I should mention that FEMA had designated the area near Huff Creek where they they got caught in this water as a special flood hazard area. So it was a very slight chance that all these things could have come together. And cause this tragedy, but it is so so sad. Yeah, and there's not too much more to add. We are all holding out hope that somehow. Yeah. But obviously, you know, you know, in your gut, on some level, and um, like you said, it is the routineness of it. Going to a barbecue on a July day, like something we all mm-hmm. do all the time. Um, it was a tremendous amount of rain that fell very quickly, a month's worth of rain in some parts of Bucks County, falling in just a matter of hours, triggering, triggering this, this wall of water. Um, and so, you know, we're just, like like I said, holding out what little hope we can. Yeah. And I will say that they didn't do anything wrong. This just happened. Yeah. Um, you know, they tell you, you know, not to drive into floodwaters, but with flash flooding, you don't really know. Um, that this type of thing is going to happen. So it's just a sad, sad uh, moment. And praying prayers to the family and sending my deepest sympathy to all those who are impacted. Yeah. Um, uh, Also wanted to talk about uh, a Princeton professor who died over the weekend. Harry G. Frankfurt uh, was 94 years old, taught at Princeton for for many, many years, was actually born in Langhorne, Mm. Bucks County, um, at, at a, a home for, for unwed mothers, actually, and was adopted and raised in New York and in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harry G. Frankfurt, interesting life, became a yeah. pretty well-known professor, much of his career, like I said, at Princeton in our area, and he specialized in the philosophy around free will. That mm-hmm. was his specialty. Mm-hmm. He sort of semi-retired in 2002. 2005 comes along. So he's winding down his career, 
And uh, Princeton takes an old essay that he had written, I believe, in the 80s mm. and repackaged it as a little 80-page book called, mm. and we actually, funny enough for a philosophy professor, cannot say the name, the full name of this book on air. Um, it was called On BS. And you know what that means. <laughs> and this little book, again, published after he had sort of started to retire, yeah. became a massive hit a bestseller. The book is about sort of the philosophical definition of BS and what makes a BSer and why it's a problem in society. Um, and this became a New York Times bestseller and in a weird way eclipsed everything else he had already done mm-hmm. in a lauded career. Um, but we're remembering him today and it's just an interesting academic story of someone who seemed to be kind of in the fourth quarter of their academic career and then this... Then blew up. Yeah, this meteor hits. Yeah. Well, I also found interesting is that he had a second, another book came out. He got a six-figure advance on his next book, which was called On Truth. And, of course, that wasn't a big hit. And my (laughs) philosophy... Of course. Of course. And my philosophy is that people would rather eat BS than swallow (laughs) the truth because the no who can handle the truth we, the, the whole movie that, line th- that question has you been can't asked handle the truth absolutely and we've talked we you and i <laughs> talked about this and and it's like we're in an age of bs right mm-hmm, now mm-hmm. because you know with the with the social media and everything and of course his book dropped in 2005 yeah. during um george w bush um, sort of not, not too not, far after not, the invasion about, yeah. of Iraq. And, and so there I think was a there lot was of speculation that that drove interest in the topic. Yes. It, to be clear, it's a philosophical treatise. It's like an academic book. And he has a philosophical definition of, of BS. BS. And the, please, the idea, uh, let's do philosophy 101 with Avi very quickly. <laughs> not that my opinion's worth much. But my understanding is that he defined BS as sort of like, if you lie, you know the truth, but you are purposefully diverting away from it yeah the bser doesn't even care what the truth is it's not even curious about what the truth is it's just sort of spouting i'm sure someone's listening will correct me on this but that was my understanding of the book it was like actual and academic work but it just it just caught on yeah and just so no one sends any email i was not linking any presidents or anybody to this topic no, no, it was no, just no, the no, no, you weren't I but, I, but there was yeah. i think it was it was sort of discussed at the time that yeah. people's interest in that was in part driven by the fact that many yes. people felt misled into the war in iraq that they had been bs'd in some way um and so this little academic book again a people repackaging to the short books yeah a repackaging of an essay written in the 80s becomes this runaway bestseller by harry I g frankfurt so it's just an interesting life um and uh, he did pass away over the weekend, age 94. But it's just a reminder of someone who lived in our area and had just a fascinating life. Fascinating. And uh, you can always pick up your copy of On BS, wherever <laughs> you can. Get your Probably books. on Amazon, yeah, yeah. I guess. I don't know. Um, quick one. The Murphy administration is moving forward with a ban of new gas-powered cars on get gas-powered cars after 2035. At this point, it's just a proposal. Mm-hmm. Um, but Murphy recently announced this filing of this rule that will require New Jersey car sales to be increasingly EVs and all EVs by 2035. Once he drops the rule in the August, there will be a period of public comment. And of course, opponents to the rule point to the high cost of EVs, lack of infrastructure and challenges for folks who want to charge them. Yeah, and our producer, Debbie Builder, uh, directed us to a really interesting New York Times article about how there's now a surplus of supply mm-hmm. with EVs because the market, the demand market, hasn't quite developed as fast as the, the their ability to produce them. And for a while, there was 
an inability to produce them because of access it's to batteries better and, and, better. and supply chain issues. So it's interesting the way the mismatch has changed a little bit. But yeah, we were following the story in Delaware, New Jersey, all over the region, um, this move toward mandatory. And EV we're going to have to switch over at some point. You're already on hybrid. I'm <laughs> thinking about it for You're my th- next still one. still thinking about I'm it? still thinking about okay. it. Yeah, I'm almost convinced. Well, let's move on to some other uh, transportation news. Um, and there's some scary images yesterday out of Montgomery mm. County. Um, where a, a freight train derailed. Um, and here to, to talk with us about it and what we know so far is Kenny Cooper, WHYY News, uh, multi-platform reporter covering Chester and Delaware counties, talking about the freight train derailment in Monco, showing his range. Um, mm-hmm. Kenny, thanks so much for joining us today on Studio Two. Thanks for having me. Can we start, uh, take us through the timeline of this derailment? When did it happen and, and what exactly derailed? So this timeline starts in the very early morning hours of Monday, um, you know, dispatches, of course, had received calls about a possible derailment. And when you hear about a possible derailment, of course, the county, yeah. the township, everyone kind of descends on the scene. And because of the derailment's actual place in the township, it was a little bit hard to find. So the county actually discovered the entire scene with the use of a drone. Hmm. And once they figured out, you know, hey, a train actually derailed, they got even closer to the site, were able to rescue or, you know, basically assist some of the people off of the train. There were no injuries. Um, none of the more dangerous stuff that was being carried on this uh, train actually uh, derailed, So, which was good. Um, but what did spill was these small uh, plastic silicone pellets. And that's what officials are working now, uh, as well as the companies. Uh, CSX actually is the owner of the train itself. Um, you know, Norfolk Southern is the owner of the actual railway. They're now handling that as they try and get that train back upright and able to be moved off the tracks. Yeah. And one of the biggest focuses was a particular train that contains a toxic substance. What were the what are the main concerns there? And is there anything that we need to be worried about in this moment? So there were a few trains that were carrying some stuff that had either been slightly tilted off the tracks and that train that you're talking about is something containing tetrachloroethylene, which mm-hmm. is a bit hard on the tongue. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's a dry cleaning agent uh, mm-hmm. or a industrial degreaser. And it is not flammable, thankfully. Okay. But the big issue is that it is toxic. So officials were worried that, hey, we got to keep an eye on this train as we're trying to get this thing back and upright and ready to be moved along so that we don't have an issue with that. Okay. All right early in the investigation, but what do we suspect is the cause of this derailment? So I reached out to CSX yesterday uh, looking for answers about why this happened or if there were any, you know, early reports. And of course, they said early indications show that it may have been a sinkhole that was the cause of this. That it may have been a sinkhole in the rail bed that caused this entire derailment. Which now, would suggest it wasn't human error necessarily. Yes, right? that's what it would suggest. Okay. So in total, this entire train was about 40 cars in length. 15 of those cars ended up derailed in some way, shape, or form. And they say that early reports indicate that a sinkhole in the rail bed is the cause of that. And I understand, I read somewhere that there had been a sinkhole in this area before. What can you tell us about that? So this area, uh, Montgomery County, but more so Chester County, but also just this area in general is prone to sinkholes. Uh, Particularly this, you know, White Marsh Township, Upper Marion, as you're hearing with this Route 202 uh, debacle on the Cow Pike. Sinkholes happen. Um, But, you know, they are also in part, you know, caused by just uh, an excess of moisture in the ground. Uh, so you kind of having this perfect storm in a sense of, you know, all these different factors at play. 
Um, and, and that's why, you know, sinkholes in this area are just prevalent. What are the next steps here? Um, they're still cleaning it up, right? Yes. So they are still cleaning it up. Of course, you have the you know national and state agencies that are on scene making sure every go everything goes according to plan. Uh, the, the plan, of course, is to of, of course clean up the actual site of these spilt silicone pellets, um, but also make sure that everything is safely transported away from the scene so they can finally do this investigation into what exactly happened and is it safe. And what does that timeline look like? So they want to actually have stuff moved off the scene by Wednesday evening, wow. uh, which is pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you know, with this being a rail that I, I believe is used, uh, you know, regularly, not sure if it's frequently, you, of course, want to make sure things are, you know, safe and sound and one, just away from all these neighborhoods. Yeah. And they they had evacuated some people who lived nearby initially, and then they let the people back in their homes. It seemed like pretty quickly. And and do they, they don't anticipate any more evacuations? Yeah, they, they don't anticipate any more evacuations. The train cars that were carrying some of the, you know, stuff that they were even more concerned about, you know, there was liquefied petroleum gas on the back end of that actual train. That stuff is completely safe. It's upright. The train has not, you know, actually, that part of the train has not derailed. So all, the stuff that they were concerned about were, in, um, you know, were mostly upright. So that's why they were felt comfortable telling people to come back to their homes. Sure. Yeah. seems like it could have been a lot worse. Yes. Yes, it could have been. But, uh, you know, a lot of the neighbors that I spoke to online and, you know, in the neighborhood were just saying that they, they were thankful that it happened near a golf course and a quarry yeah, yeah. instead of right in someone's backyard. And got to ask you, I mean, Norfolk Southern been in headlines recently um, because it was one of their trains that derailed and led to that chemical spill in East Palestine, Ohio. I know they only own the railway in this case, but did their name come up? Was there any issues that you've heard of because they are under investigation and facing lawsuits right now in that other derailment? So I actually haven't been able to speak with Norfolk Southern. I reached out to them yesterday, haven't received a response. But of course, like you said, in this situation, they own the rail and not the car itself. And as of right now, it appears as though a sinkhole was kind of the reason for this derailment. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's unclear about whether or not what else this investigation could possibly bring. Um, but, of course, people are going to be keeping a close eye any time Norfolk Southern's name is involved. Well, he is Kenny Cooper, yes. WHYY News multi-platform reporter covering Chester and Delaware counties, giving us all the intel on this freight train derailment in Montgomery County. Kenny, thanks so much for the time. Thank you. And coming up next, Amos Lee performs live right here in Studio 2. Are you excited, Avi? Of course. How could I not be? Stick with us. Lots to come. And welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. We are continuing our live music series this afternoon with Philadelphia native singer songwriter Amos Lee. With his instantly recognizable, soulful voice and blend of folk, rock, and soul sounds, they make him a unique talent. His latest album is My Ideal, a tribute to Chet Baker Sings. He'll be performing with the Philadelphia Orchestra this Thursday at the TD Pavilion at the Mans and joins us now in our Philadelphia studios. Amos Lee, welcome to Studio Two. Awesome to be here. Thanks, Cherry. Um, so you're playing with the orchestra? Yeah. This week. Pretty wild. Yeah, Which, two days. For someone who you grew up in Kensington and in Cherry Hill, lived here basically your whole life, right? That must be, I mean, define, try to describe 
as a personal milestone what it means for you to play with the Philadelphia Orchestra? It's awesome. Um, I think my first musical experience was on the Al Albert show, which if you're an old school Philly person, you know <laughs> okay. what that means. So, so that's it. <laughs> it was a kid's variety show. I didn't win anything, but I had just some real Philly experiences. I played recorder on stage at the Settlement Music School, but that was pretty much the, the root and the branch of my musical education. So to take the stage with the orchestra, it's just mind-bending, first of all, but it's just wonderful to get to celebrate with my family and my friends and Philadelphia people who have been there from the very beginning. Like, this city is the best. I love our culture. I love our community. And I love our music scene. So it's just an, it's an honor and just a gift to be able to do this. Yeah, and I, I love your story, by the way. You taught second grade. Uh, you were a teacher at Bethune Elementary. Yeah. And you kind of fell into music a little bit later. You didn't grow up thinking, I'm going to be a musician. Mm -mm. Can you tell us the story of the day you determined, like, music will be my life? It was a slow burn. Um, I started writing songs in college. Um, I went to school for English and education. I wanted to teach reading. I always just wanted to give back and help give some love back that I felt I got a lot of. And uh, so I went to college, did all my schooling, got done, got a job at Bethune, did literacy stuff with kids, loved the kids. Mm. Such great, amazing, resilient, beautiful minds. And um, for me, the teaching was a bit more difficult because mm. I'm pretty ADD and I'm, I'm disorganized. So I'm good at one-on-one. -on -one. I was good helping the kids, but it was just I wasn't really a classroom teacher. I could have, but I didn't. And at the time, I was just starting to play more songs and get involved in open mics here in Philly. And I just fell in love with people and with the music and just figuring out how to live a more uh, like authentic, artistic life. And it was just, it wasn't falling into it. It was diving into it. And I dove, I dove all the way in. I was over my head and I just kept going and I'm still going. So it, it was a surprise for me. Like if, I did a thing at Hill Friedman Academy. I don't know if you all know mm -hmm. Hill Friedman. Northwest yeah. Philly, yeah. right? Yeah. Amazing school. My yeah. friend Andrew Lipke, who did a lot of the arrangements for the orchestra show, he teaches a music class there. And I went in and did some stuff with the kids. And I was like, listen, when I was in high school, I had no idea I'd be doing this. If you told me you'll be a professional musician, I would have told you, A, I have no idea how you even <laughs> yeah. think that because I've never even picked an <laughs> instrument up. Wow. So... Our, you know, the paths that we have before us are, are not always as um, sort of spectacular as we think they are, but also they're not as obvious. Yeah. We're, mm -hmm. we're just sort of like, I wanted to be a basketball player. That was my dream, okay? Hey, don't give up on that. <laughs> no, I'm fully given up. I don't even play. I won't even put sneakers on anymore, but... Uh, you know, I I wasn't a, I wasn't a musical musically minded person. I would listen mm -hmm. to the Power Nine at nine every night, which was our R and B station. I'd sing along. Luther Vandross was my guy. That was mm, that was who I Luther. based all of my singing off of in the beginning, which is a ludicrous thing for like a twelve year old to say. <laughs> but, you know, I've just been having fun with it. Honestly, it's it's just a a weird, awesome. Uh, completely taxing lifestyle, but it's worth it. I get to meet people like y'all. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that was a perk, but I'm glad it, it is. is. Yeah, um, for sure. I wanted to ask about your musical training because um, you were posting on social media about the show you have coming coming up, and you said that you're sort of 
a new convert to classical music mm-hmm. and you even admitted some of it still goes over your head but you feel the power of it and, mm. and in that post you also said you have no music education outside of one guitar lesson how did you learn to write songs um you, i'm still learning honestly it is such a process you know like so the first time i ever got a guitar i was like everybody else which just you know you can't really play it. A lot of people get discouraged early on in, in music. And I'm like, just keep going. If, honestly, if I can do it, you, seriously, you can do it. I have no reason to be doing this. But the first time I got between two chords, which was like C to A minor, uh, I wrote a song. I just had it in me and I didn't know. I, it was just sort of like, oh, okay, cool. Th- this is what you do with a musical instrument. You write things and you sing them. So... It, was, it wasn't learning. It was just sort of an unfolding that became a life. You wrote a whole song, C to A minor. Uh, I've written a lot of songs, C to A minor. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I don't need more than two chords, bro. I mean, if you come to the, the orchestra, will probably not love that part. But, you know, <laughs> I, I'm pretty simple. Um, you know, if I can throw in a, like a fun little jazzy chord here and there, I feel like I've done my job. Um, but... Um, yeah, I don't have. I had one guitar lesson. I've never taken any singing lessons. I've learned a lot from my friends, yeah. and specifically about classical music. I have a lot of friends who are really, just honestly, geniuses. I, I don't say that lightly either. They're really genius people, and they'll just send me stuff. And we have such a great classical music world here in, in Philly because yeah. of Curtis. And because of our orchestra, which has is a lot of people consider the best orchestra in the country. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot for for Philly. You know, like we're we're a tough town. You know, we're we're a tough group of folks and we work for everything we get. But we also have these beautiful elevated things in our city, quote unquote, elevate. I consider it all elevated. But we have these things that are thought of in the canon of culture as more elevated and we we really have everything in this town we really do it's it's the best city in america that's just me i mean look i, I know we just did the mayor race so i can't run but <laughs> i really do think it's great hey four more years and and by the way feel free to play music whenever you're inspired to do so because in listening to your music i noticed that your sound varies literally song to song in some cases depending on the album depending on song it can range from funk to soulful jazz to r&b i love that you love luther because mm-hmm. i love luther too mm-hmm. um you were mentored by both the late bill withers mm. and joe preen john preen yeah excuse me um different sounds both very pure both both very simple how do you characterize yourself as an artist or can you or do you like being oh the type of person that cannot be characterized. I'm fine. Characterize me if you feel the need to. I'm happy to get whatever's there. Um, I think part of the the thing that's been difficult is categorizing me and putting me in a genre because if you're in country, you get the country crowd. If you're in R&B, you can get the R&B crowd. If you're in hip-hop, you got a genre. I do a lot of stuff. I'm eclectic, Mm -hmm. which I'm fine with. It's just what I love. Like, if I made you a playlist, it would be everything from Mendelssohn to the Dixie Hummingbirds to Coltrane to Erica Badu to, to it would be everywhere. And that's the music I love. That's the stuff I respond to. Um, but yeah, with Bill and John, um, you know, John Prine was my favorite songwriter. He was like the reason why I do that. Like <laughs> yeah. the reason why. And Bill was another person that I just knew his tunes. 
and mm-hmm. I met him and I was like I just man thank you for existing because he was just like not about nonsense he was just about like making beautiful stuff and then he stepped away from music for for the rest of his life and just lived but he lived fully and like deeply a beautiful guy and just meeting them I was I don't think Bill cared about being classified at all in fact I think that's part of what drove him away um, he was such a unique songwriter. There's mm-hmm. nobody who's ever written like Bill Withers. And he would probably tell you, too, that his limitations were also part of the his genius. And I think Prine would say the same. And I kind of, in that way, my limitations, I think, have also created a place for me to exist comfortably um, as a songwriter, because I don't overthink it yeah you know um, i can just play one chord or two chords and and feel through a story without feeling the need to change stuff a lot so if you think about bill you know like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. grandma's hand clapping church on sunday morning one chord mm. Now, he does change the chord a little bit, but he doesn't care about that. He wants your heart, and he wants to tell you a story. And so does Prine. And that's where I live with both of those guys. So there are other songwriters who do have an incredible amount of musical sophistication or chord knowledge. Like if you listen to Joni Mitchell, it's, you, you don't know what journey you're going on, but you're going on a journey. With Bill, it's like settle in and get this story in your soul. Is there a song of yours that you feel really exemplifies that type of songwriting that's really like living in a chord or two chords that, I mean, that really stands out you to you know the first tune that ever came out for me on a record was a song called keep it loose keep it tight and it's three chords well it's really four but um this one was really super simple straightforward like i was sitting backstage somewhere in scotland and had a guitar and again like the wonder of music is what inspires me still does so I started playing this chord, which to me is fancy, but to someone who doesn't know music, it's not fancy. And I just walked it up because I didn't know what else to do and walked it down, walked it up. And then I just come to a, come to a place where there feels like there's some momentum. And then the melody, if you listen to the melody, it's just the same as the guitar. Well, I walked over the bridge into the city where I live, saw my old landlord. Now we both said hello, there was nowhere else to go, it's rent I couldn't afford. Now relationships change, though I think it's kind of strange, money makes a man grow. Well, some people lay claim, if you get enough fame, you live over the rainbow, over the rainbow. But the people on the street, out on buses, out on feet, we all got the same blood flow. Iron society, every dollar got a deed, we all need a place and we can go. Feel over the rainbow. But sometimes we forget what we've got. We are Lord. I think we've got a chance to make it right if you keep it loose. Yeah. 
studio yes. <laughs> can't help ourselves so be- this is another i love my job day <laughs> at work i i gotta ask you sort of about your songwriting because um i read somewhere that you know your albums many times you write songs about other people to show mm. your empathy mm. but then one of your recent albums dreamland mm. was more about you mm. and your life mm. um why Recently, did you decide mm. to start telling your own life story and and of the he- healing nature of music? Because music has been very healing for you. It's. I was actually thinking about this this morning. I've been writing a lot of songs lately, and there's sometimes both. There's sometimes my story and other people's stories. I don't tend to write entirely biographic songs. Mm-hmm. Probably for a lot of reasons. One, it doesn't feel that compelling to me. I like nuance in the storytelling, but I also want it to be a shared experience. And the more that I can bring someone else's story into it, the more likely it is it can be shared. That's my feeling. I know that there are a million ways to write a song, so I don't say that I know the way. But um, I was thinking about this latest group of songs, and this applies to some of the tunes on Dreamland. It's like therapy. Mm -hmm. And when I have my head deep into the songs... I'm reliving all these emotions, and it's like I don't know if any if if either of y'all have been to therapy. I, I'm uh, it's a very personal yeah. question to ask to to mm-hmm. to a couple of folks, but you're raw when you come out, and when you're in therapy, you're raw. And so when I'm writing these songs and I'm living with them every day, it's the same feeling as being in therapy. I'm working through emotions. I might not be talking to someone else, but I'm talking to myself through the music. And sometimes art and music is cathartic. It's often cathartic, and that's sort of why is that we're working through stuff in the process of creating. It's not just, oh, well, I feel better now. Let me write this song about what happened. I'm working through it during the writing of it. So I may be thinking about, you know, a love that was lost or a friend that I lost or a joyful experience that I have to let go of because that's what our life is. You know, it's a series of events that are incredible or terrible and they always just fade away. (laughs) So the songwriting for me is, is just a cathartic way to get into the emotions and into the feelings 
of myself and the things that come into my life, the people that come into my life, the people I love, the people I've lost. So, you know, that's that's the shared experience for me. And that's where the process is. That's where the I'm writing about me now stuff kind of comes from. It's like, all right, I better work through some of this. Backtracking a bit to the show. Hey, thanks for interviewing me, by the way. This is this is really great. I've never been on WHYY before. Are you serious? No. Your hometown? Whoa, First whoa, time whoa, whoa. ever. First of all, I'm going to excoriate WHYY for that, right? Never. Now. But, it's but, wild. I mean, this was the station I grew up listening yes. to when my my mom was like, okay, now it's time to learn. <laughs> that made you listen to And it. when we saw <laughs> you were going to be here, yeah. we had to bring you in. So, yeah. so I actually want to ask about that hometown aspect, because this is a sort of a hometown moment for you this week playing with the orchestra. Um, and it made me reflect on your career and how you have become so associated with the place that you grew up and you are so loved here. And whether you think your career would have unfolded dramatically differently if you had permanently relocated to one of those music meccas, mm. Nashville, LA, mm. uh, New York. Um, do you think it would have been a very different career if, if you were not here now? Um. I don't know. I mean, that's it, I could take that journey, like do a meditation or something, and think about it. But I don't. I don't think it would be very different, other than like the people that I know from Philadelphia are just so awesome. Like I was inspired to write in the beginning because of the songwriters and art coming out of Philly. Whether it was Black Lily, The Roots, Chill Moody, who's going to be at the Man tomorrow night, yes. which is going to be amazing. Um, or just the so- singer-songwriters going to Ortlieb's and listening to jazz. Like, this is a music mecca, as far as I'm yeah. concerned. It may not have a lot of industry, but if you're a music maker, this is a mecca. And I tell all of my friends who live in other pl- I tell my friends from Nashville to move to Philly. Yeah, I'm like, if you really <laughs> want to get into your business, come here. If you want to be around business, go there. Wow, interesting. That's deep, and, and I know that you were you had Sixth and Lombard in one of your videos. Oh yeah, it was very Philly centric. Is there a song that you love that you think you bring lots of Philly to? Uh, loose tight is the song I just played. Keep it loose, keep it tight. Is a song like di- dis- distinctly about Philadelphia, the early days, and like I, you know, it's about sitting on a milk crate and thinking about your life in front of your house, you know, um, and walking over the Ben Franklin or whichever bridge you choose. Maybe you choose the Tecone Palmyra. I don't know. But um, <laughs> it's just a that song is very reflective to me about Philly. Um, I feel like there's a there's a legendary drummer named James Gadson who played with Bill Withers for a bunch of years. He's played on everything. Um, one of my favorite people on the planet. And I was recording my third record, which was called Last Days at the Lodge, and he was the drummer on the session. And uh, we did a tune. I think we did this song called Won't Let Me Go, which is like a more R&B song. And he was like, I got... And James has played with everybody, like Marvin Gaye, the Jackson 5. He played with Bill Withers, everybody. He's the dude. And he was like, yo, man, there's just something in the water in Philly because y'all come out of there with something that nobody else has. And I, I really do feel that that way. And to just answer both of your questions sort of in one... Um, f- sort of uh, point um, you know this is where we are we mm-hmm. are in Philly and if you don't feel it you ain't here that's how I feel like I feel this city very much when I'm here like I get off the plane and I'm like I'm home and it inspires me I've, I've written in other towns too I've been to other towns there's amazing music everywhere you know but there's just nothing like this place 
Well, um, I tweeted out you're going to be on the show, and of course, multiple people uh, tweeted three words at me um, in response, which was say the name. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Yeah, um, that's great. You've been you've been a regular <laughs> on this basketball podcast, the Rights to Ricky Sanchez yeah. podcast, and, and you you mentioned you wanted to be a basketball player. And yes. one of the things I um, hearing you on that podcast, you have an incredible biting sense of humor. Oh. And I'm, I'm not, from I'm, Philadelphia, I, dude. I just told you that. And I'm not, I'm not trying to flatter you, but I'm curious if you ever think I want to filter more of that into my songwriting, into my mus- musicality, or those are separate yeah, things to you. That's tough. I think it takes a really specific kind of songwriter to inject good humor into, uh, into songs that aren't comedy songs. Yeah. I can write comedy songs all day, but re- like getting humor into songs, like Prine could do yeah. that. Mose Allison could do that really well. He's one of my favorite, like my favorite Rye singer songwriters. Like he can inject like just subtle shade into everything. I think in hip hop, I find because I have done some some MCing before. I've done some rapping, and I find it much easier to have humor in that than like saying something real nasty over this chord <laughs> isn't like super helpful. But people do it. I'm I'm in awe of them. I try to during the show have some humorous stuff go on, like because some of the songs can get heavy, and I like some levity in a show. I grew up also bartending here at a club called the Tin Angel, which was um, down in old. I guess we're sort of this is more Society Hill, mm-hmm. right? Old City. Um, by the way, me and my mom also lived in a house like two blocks from here in like oh, the really? '80s for like six months. That's where I learned to ride a bike. Actually, yeah, we moved a bunch of times. So. Um, so whenever I come down here, I'm like, oh, right. This used to be kind of wild down here. <laughs> now it's more up. But um, yeah. Uh, so yeah. yeah, the humor stuff. I love humor. I mean, comedy is my my favorite genre of everything. Like yeah. Songwriting is great. But if a, a good comedian is my favorite thing. So, And I, I wish we had more time with you. But yeah. I want to say, Amos Lee, we appreciate you being here. Oh, thanks. It's in great. Studio 2. Y'all are awesome. And the the show is Thursday at the Man, right? Sure Just, is. The, the details, real quickly, for folks who want to uh, check it out. Uh, the details are Thursday night. I think we play at like seven or something, maybe eight. Yes, eight um, o'clock. I'm not great with details. I just will be there Thursday at the <laughs> you'll, man. You'll yes. be there. <laughs> Orchestra will be there. Obviously. And if you follow WHYY on social media, by the end of the day, you could win two tickets to the show. So there you go. There you go. There you go. Up next, we're going to talk about some some little-known history about First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, and we are closing out this segment with Amos Lee's With You. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back, everybody, to Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman-Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. 
80 years ago, during World War II, a plane made its way from the U.S. to the troops in the Pacific. One of the passengers on board was First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. And Cherry, this was not an easy first-class kind of journey. It was so dangerous, in fact, that the military did everything it could to keep it a secret. One of our producers, Andreas Copes, is fascinated with Eleanor Roosevelt. We've heard this a lot (laughs) back in our alcove in the office. Read a lot about her and the backlash that she has faced over the years. So when Andreas saw that New Jersey author Shannon McKenna-Schmidt had a new book out on Eleanor Roosevelt, they jumped at the chance to talk with her. The book is called The First Lady of World War II. Let's take a listen. The thing with Eleanor is that when she entered the White House in 1933, she was already well established in her own right as an educator, a political advocate, a a writer, a speaker, and a traveler. And in fact, Eleanor was an early advocate of commercial air travel at a time when it was thought that only the most courageous and athletic people were fit to fly. She was friends with Amelia Earhart and wanted to be a pilot herself. And when she did enter the White House, the American public got a first lady the likes of which they had never seen before. Traditionally, first ladies stayed close to the White House, they oversaw social functions, and they did not take an active part in public life. Eleanor turned all of that on its head because that was just not going to work for her. Um, Shannon, you mentioned that Eleanor Roosevelt was a controversial figure. Um, She even drove the car um, around Washington herself without the Secret Service. Yes, yes. And her her travels were were very controversial. She was constantly making headlines for them. In fact, one year into his presidency, FDR asked Eleanor to go to Puerto Rico to investigate labor and living conditions. And the fact that she took a flight over water cemented her reputation as fearless and unconventional. And it was also, yeah, that she would drive her own car. She actually won a showdown with the Secret Service uh, because she didn't want them following her around everywhere. So she, she, and she won the showdown to drive her own car. They did ask her to keep a gun in the glove compartment, which she did. <laughs> she also made unique news of, of media. She had her My Day columns and then also radio shows in which she addressed the nation. And I think there was a very significant one in December 1941 during Pearl, Pearl Harbor, um, where, where she was actually the first one to address the nation about what, what happened. Yes, I find that so extraordinary. So she had, yes, as, as you mentioned, um, many outlets that she used to communicate with the American public. And one of them was a radio show called Over Our Coffee Cups. And she was scheduled to go on the air already the Sunday that Pearl Harbor was bombed. She was going on in the air in the evening. And they decided to keep that radio address, her program, keep it scheduled for that night. And she did amend her introduction to the program to talk about what had happened um, and to and to to reassure and buoy the American people for, for what was coming. I should like to say just a word to the women in the country tonight. I have a boy at sea on a destroyer. For all I know, he may be on his way to the Pacific. Two of my children are in coast cities on the Pacific. Many of you all over this country have boys in the services who will now be called upon to go into action. You have friends and families in what has suddenly become a danger zone. You cannot escape anxiety. You cannot escape a clutch of fear at your heart. And yet I hope that the certainty of what we have to meet 
will make you rise above these fears. And then, of course, the United States joined um, the fight in, in World War II. And as we said, she, she made her move. She, she traveled to the Pacific Theater. Why was she there? The trip occurred at a crucial time in the war. In the summer of 1943, the tide was turning for the Allies in Europe and the Pacific. And Eleanor felt that people were becoming overly optimistic about the war, and that in turn was making them dangerously complacent. There were strikes at war production factories across the country. People were complaining about food rationing and shortages. And this trip would link the home front and the fighting front and really remind the nation that they could not give up on their duties until the war was won and that any slackening in production risked the lives of the men on the distant battlefields. So I guess the aim, as you said, is to unite the home and the war front. I guess my question is, how did the troops react to her visit? By and large, uh, the, the troops were pleased to have her there. One of the things I, I found interesting is that a lot of them responded to a mother figure in their midst mm. and and remarked on that. Now, of course, not everybody's happy that she's there. You know, somebody grumbled when asked if he was happy that the president's wife was there. He said, well, I'd rather be visited by my own wife. <laughs> so so, you know, there there were some some grumblers, um, some people who who were not pleased to have her there, including some of the commanding officers. Um, but by and large. It, it was a very successful morale-building um, trip. While reading your book, what I found really interesting was that some troop members, some some members of the of the forces, they stumbled upon some misinformation. Yes. Yeah, so there was a rumor circulating among servicemen, and Eleanor knew about this before she even left for the Pacific because servicemen were writing to her about it. Um, their families were writing to her about it. And the allegation was that she had said that the Marines would be too savage to return to civilian life right away and that they should be quarantined for malaria. I mean, this this rumor took various forms, but she took great care while she was in the Pacific to to make the men realize that this was, in fact, just propaganda and that she never would say something like that because she, in fact, had a son in the Marines and she told them that he would never allow her to have any such ideas. But it was it was it was, you know, it was somewhat damaging, which, you know, was was the point of it. And eventually they tracked it down to a Japanese radio host. Is that right? Yes. So the the there there was a Marine correspondent and he tried to find out the source. Um and a Red Cross hostess actually told Eleanor that she gave her a heads up while she was in New Zealand before going to Australia that men were were saying, well, we don't want her here because because she said this. But interestingly, nobody could pinpoint a source. They had all, mm. all the men that said that they had heard it had heard it from someone else. Um, and, and the speculation is that it was started by Tokyo Rose, who was um, a Japanese uh, propaganda front. Of course, Twitter or Facebook did not exist at that time. So communication was a lot um, a lot slower than it is these days. How did the home front react to the travels of Eleanor Roosevelt when they learned about it 10 days after her, after she had left the country already? So so she gets to New Zealand and news breaks that she has been out of the country 
for 10 days and she pops up on the other side of the world. And there wasn't so much surprise that she did in fact turn up in New Zealand, but that the trip had been such a well-kept secret. That was the part that surprised people. How did they try to keep it a secret? What were the efforts from the, the U.S. Army to keep her journey a secret? Well, one of the things that I came across in, in my research and I love is the National Archives has some dispatches sent by the Navy higher ups in real time during the trip. And nobody was even allowed to mention Eleanor's name um, in the in these secret Navy dispatches. And they were only allowed to refer to Flight 321. I think we also have to talk about the man behind the woman, FDR. What did he say about that trip? What, how did he feel about his wife being so far away and at such risk? Well, FDR was always supportive of Eleanor's travels. It's something that I think that he knew she needed personally. And also he benefited from it. Um, you know, he and his politics policy advisors could use the information that she brought back. And so he he supported the trip. But of course, you know, he was a little bit reluctant to see her put in harm's way. This is Shannon McKenna-Schmidt. She's the author of The First Lady of World War II, Eleanor Roosevelt's Daring Journey to the Frontlines and Back. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us today on Studio Two. Thank you for having me. Learned something today, Avi. Hopefully Fantastic. you did too. Well, that's it for our show today. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray-Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Great job. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. And Great for more job. on our show, you can head on over to whyy.org slash Studio 2 or download us wherever you get your podcasts. From Studio 2 and W at WHYY in Philly, I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman-Aaron. Thanks for stopping by, folks. <laughs>